So let's pray that the Lord would burden uh, someone to go, a worker to go, and that he would also work in their hearts to soften their, their hearts to the, the good news of, of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for these few minutes that we have together. And before we climb into the passage that you have uh, ordained for us this morning, we want to lift up a few particulars. We want to pray for this people group, Lord, this uh, people that, that we don't know, that few, if any, are engaging. Lord, uh, we are thankful that you know of them and that uh, they're fearfully and wonderfully made and you know uh, that they um, don't know your son. And we ask for that, Lord, that you would call workers to the far corners of the field uh, to hard, difficult places like this to bring the good news of the gospel. Lord, that you would couple that with dreams and visions and uh, eagerness to have some answers about who their creator is and uh, what you have done to make a way for you to be knowable. And Lord, that in those dreams and visions and searching that you would connect the dots between the goer and the hearer and that you would be glorified in the kingdom advancing. Lord, we uh, ask that for this people, the Kona Momba people, and uh, thankful that we can lift them up this morning. Lord, also this morning, I want to pray for a family, another church in our community, praying for family fellowship and for Paul and Lynn Blue. Lord, we are thankful for this shared ministry in this community with uh, a church that has long had a, a, a great history here and well-planted feet and many lives impacted over the years, and we're thankful for the opportunity to lift them up this morning. Lord, we pray that you would bless Family Fellowship, that you would uh, bless uh, Paul and Lynn in their marriage first and in worship, that they would enjoy you as they um, are going about their week, enjoying you first, and that that would overflow into their family and into the, the pulpit and into the uh, meetings and counseling times that Paul may have and all the ministry that he tends to over the course of the week. Lord, we pray that for this church, uh, for Family Fellowship, that they uh, would just grow in faith, that they would be equipped, uh, even this morning, to be salty, bright, and aromatic, and that they would walk out what they're hearing, and that you would be glorified in that. Uh, Lord, we are um, praying, too, for our few minutes together. I'm praying for a clarity um, of mouth that I have in head and heart uh, that I hope will be something that you will make discernible, uh, that the Holy Spirit will bring some clarity uh, in these next few minutes and, and, and really even um, open our eyes to something that may surprise us. Lord, we entrust this time to you, entrust ourselves to you in this time. And we pray in these things in Christ's name. Amen. Anyone who piously and earnestly ponders the Sermon on the Mount, Augustine said, as we read in the Gospel of Matthew, and you can turn there, Matthew chapter 5 this morning is where we're going to be. Anyone who piously and earnestly ponders the Sermon on the Mount, as we read in the Gospel of Matthew, I believe he will find therein the perfect standard of the Christian life. From this ancient brother many, many years ago who enjoyed the Sermon on the Mount, we get these words of encouragement that this is time well spent pondering a fine, fine sermon from our Lord. So we're going to climb right into our passage this morning. We're in Matthew chapter 5. Finally, we're getting actually into the text. We have had a few weeks, uh, a couple of week investment in sort of what surrounds it, but this morning we're actually getting right into the passage. We'll be looking at this morning verses 1 through 12. Uh, in some ways, I'll sort of unpack the first couple of verses, and then we're going to spend the majority of the rest of our time really trying to make sense of how to read verses 3 through 12. And I'm hoping that it's something that the Lord really opens your eyes to something. I, I shared with someone this morning, I was talking about um, what I'm anticipating in this sermon. I'm anticipating some furrowed brows from people that aren't necessarily disagreeing, but people that are sort of 
having a paradigm disassembled. Paradigms don't come down easily. And when they come down, um, sometimes you see it in your faces where you're going, okay, I'm not, not quite got my head around that yet. So I'm expecting a little, bit, a little bit of that this morning. Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between somebody who's trying to make sense of something and really getting their head around something and somebody that really doesn't even care. <laughs> so that's the thing. And, and if it looks like the latter, then I usually get louder. So I'm going to try and not to get loud today, whatever you look like. I'm just going to hope and pray the Lord will just open your eyes to what I'm, I think is really pretty, pretty wonderful. So uh, let's climb into our passage, Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... I enjoy the verbs that are connected to our Lord and just a few of them here. He saw the crowds. He went up on the mountain. It's an important mountain. It has the definite article in front of it. It's not a mountain, but the mountain. Something pretty profound about this mountain in Galilee. He sat down, the same word that was used of Moses when he spent a lot of time at the top of Mount Sinai. The same word was used there. He sat down, i.e. stayed on the mountain, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Those who saw that unfold that day may not have recognized all the details. I'm betting some did. Notice the geography, notice how the thing unfolded. But it's hard to imagine that folks that weren't reading the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew in the first century, weren't making a beeline to a man named Moses. Now, Gentiles, maybe not so much. But Jews, for sure, would have noticed the details here and the similarities. Those on that mount that that day, hearing Jesus preach in Aramaic, would have recognized these events, maybe. But definitely those reading in the first century would have said, Hey, deja vu all over again. That's Yogi Berra quote that I enjoy. Something something looks really familiar here. Because Christ, when he stepped on, top, on, on this mountain that day and he spoke, he was the fulfillment of a prophecy that was made 1,500 years earlier through a man named Moses. In Deuteron- Deuteronomy chapter 18, here's that prophecy. The Lord your God, Moses says to the nation of Israel, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. In verse 18, it says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And and whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. As these guys recognize, certainly the readers in the first century, they're recognizing the similarity between Moses and Christ and this fulfillment of this prophecy some 1,500 years earlier. They considered Moses not just a lawgiver. A lot of times that's how we look at Moses. It's just the guy that brought us the law. But they considered Moses as a redeemer, as a deliverer, as a mediator, and as a savior. And profound notions about this man named Moses. So when they're seeing in Christ all these things, it's an important recognition to see Christ as the early church reader would have seen this as well, as redeemer, deliverer, mediator, and savior. And instead of liberty from Egypt and slavery, however many hundreds of years they were in slavery, we know they were there 430 years, however many of those years they're making bricks, and however profound that delivery was through Moses and his work, It paled in comparison. It was only a shadow to the profound deliverance from sin and self and death that we find in Christ as our Savior 
as our deliverer, as our mediator, and as our redeemer. Matthew 1, 21, the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses and said, His name shall be Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Man, he is our new and better Moses. These first couple of passages really point to that. Let's get into the passage itself. This redeemer, savior, deliverer, this mediator opens his mouth and teaches in verses 3 through 12. And this is the introduction to his sermon. The entire Sermon on the Mount, three chapters long. These few verses are the introduction. Now each week I try and have an attention gainer at the beginning of a sermon. I didn't have one this morning on purpose because this is the attention gainer. This is Christ's attention gainer at the beginning of his sermon. And it's not just a quippy story, a funny little story. It's not an email that somebody maybe sent him. It's not a, something that's a tearjerker to sort of soften the heart. Uh, it's actually something very profound that he is beginning this sermon with. It's going to set the tone for the rest of the sermon. So let's climb into it. They're called the Beatitudes, beginning in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. These are called the Beatitudes. The word comes from the translation of the Greek word makarios, which is where we're going to be camped out quite a bit this morning, to the Latin word beatus. This beatus word, this Latin word means happy. You'll see this translation sometimes. Happy are the poor in spirit. The, the Beatitudes begin with happy. Um, beatus is also translated blissful, fortunate, and flourishing. That's a very important word. Flourishing. But here's the problem this morning. We are stuck with a word, at least for the moment, at least in our translation, with the word blessed. Blessed. The problem is it's a tiny little parking space. It's a tiny little car, this word blessed. Maybe that's the way we should, should think of it. A tiny little car parked in a tiny little parking space. And I think you'll find over the course of the morning that this tiny little word that is a parking place for a thought of being blessed is in there a little bit crooked. So we hope to sort of pan out this morning and find a better parking place for a better understanding of this word, makarios. And we'll come back to that later in the morning. There are nine of these Beatitudes. I'll continue to call them Beatitudes, at least for the moment. There are nine of these. Some, some consider them just to be eight. You may read some things on the Beatitudes, and some may number them as eight by combining the last couple, where they sort of synthesize or combine and, and condense uh, verses 8 through 10 into one Beatitude. For the treatment of, I think probably for our treatment for sure this morning and likely throughout these next few weeks, we're going to consider them as nine. If you look at the trajectory of these nine Beatitudes, it's interesting how they are similar to the, uh, to the law, to the Ten Commandments. If you study the Ten Commandments, you know that you've got ten of them there. I eat ten, that's why I call them ten. And the first five deal with a vertical sort of trajectory. 
a relationship between you, the worshiper, and God. And the next five deal, the next tablet, kind of envisionment and tablets, the second tablet deals with more of a horizontal application. And it's very similar here. Not only in geography is he climbing a mountain to speak. I mean, the similarities are profound. But also in trajectory. The first four have a vertical trajectory. And the next five have a horizontal trajectory, just much like the Ten Commandments. Each of these beatitudes includes something called a protasis and an apodosis. Okay, let me just kind of show you. If you can look at your passage here, I'll show you the protasis in each of these. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Okay, that's the protasis, the poor in spirit. Here's another protasis, those who mourn, those who are meek. Okay, that's the protasis. The apodosis is in each of these. They, they follow a similar pattern, each of them. The apodosis for those who are poor in spirit, the protasis, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, the apodosis. Okay, the protasis here. Apodosis here. Protasis, poor in spirit. Apodosis, this is the kingdom of heaven. Now here's what's interesting about each of these protasis and each of these apodosis. If you look down them, each apodosis is pretty much awesome. Right? I mean, just look at them, all right? The apodosis is the last part of each of them. Each of them is pretty much awesome. You're going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. Even if you don't want to know what that means, that still sounds pretty awesome, right? Inheritance? Okay, that's going to be pretty great. Okay, you're going to be comforted. Sounds good. I mean, everybody could use some comfort. They shall inherit the earth. There's more inheritance stuff. Man, I'm liking these apodosis. They're awesome. That she, uh, that you'll be satisfied. Man, that sounds good to be satisfied. Uh, you're going to receive mercy. You'll see God. You'll be called the sons of God. You will have the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The apodosis, when you re- and I think that's plural of apodosis. We'll say it is anyway. The apodosis look awesome. But the protases look like, kind of like a drag. I mean, really, just look at them. Let's be really honest and really straightforward with dealing with this passage. We're not going to call something that is not. We're, gonna call, we're not going to call it something that is not. Let's look at each of these protases. Just look down the list. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Ooh. That kind of doesn't, I mean, poverty alone doesn't sound good, but poor in spirit sounds like you're kind of downcast, downtrodden. We'll get into what that actually is next week. Those who mourn. Oh, that doesn't sound that great. I mean, we know what mourning is. That, really? Uh, those who are meek. Ooh, that doesn't sound that great either. Uh, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Uh, that sounds kind of like a drag too because being hungry and thirsty, that's not something that I have to deal with very often because I medicate quickly. But I bet most of us in this room, we can imagine someone where we've been hungry and, thir- hungry and thirsty. And we go, okay, that doesn't sound very good. Blessed are the merciful, having to actually apply mercy. That doesn't sound real great. You know what mercy is? That's applying forgiveness to someone who doesn't deserve it. Kind of sounds like a drag. (laughs) I mean, I think we all like to give people what they deserve, don't we? If we're really honest. Being pure in heart, maybe that one kind of sounds pretty good. But the peacemakers, does anybody like to make a beeline to conflict? Like, oh, goody, I can't wait to step right into the middle of the fray here and get beaten up while two people are going at it. Man, these protasis sound like a drag. Just consider right off the bat, if this is his attention getter, it's a profound attention getter. Happy, blissful, fortunate, and flourishing are you when you're in the pits is basically the attention getter. So everybody on that mountainside that day is probably going, wait a minute, what? Did he just say... What I thought he said. 
It's definitely an attention getter. Some themes that come out of these, um, each of these Beatitudes. Kingdom of heaven. Uh, righteousness is a theme that comes out in inheritance. We've already seen that a couple times. Uh, mercy is a theme there. There's a bunch of withouts in there. A bunch of things that, that, that you don't like to go without. That imply being that you're going without something. Poverty, mourning, meekness, hunger, thirst. And then this surprising theme in the Beatitudes... Remember I told you, this whole sermon itself is about the happy, the good life. A surprising theme of persecution. Man, an unanticipated notion of flourishing, happiness, uh, blissful, fortunate, flourishing in the middle of suffering and persecution. Okay, if his mission was to shock people right off the bat and to get their attention, I suspect and I anticipate that he really did that. He opened his mouth. He taught them saying these things. The first couple passages tell us. We also know that he's a fulfillment of that Deuteronomy prophecy. I will put my words in his mouth. So he's speaking the words of God here on this mount. And they are surprising and shocking words. Even as the crowds recognized uh, or heard what he was saying that day, they themselves recognized the authority with which he was speaking. And it says toward the end of the sermon over there in chapter 7, it says they were astonished. (laughs) I mean, really, if you think about what he's saying so far, you have to join them in being astonished. Do these words astonish you yet? I mean, did you really come here to try and make sense of stuff Or were you just that Sunday morning, I need to occupy some time? Because it's what I do on Sunday mornings. If you came here to really make sense of stuff like your own lives and where you're living and how you're moving and what you're doing in this faith venture, then you have to join the crowds there that day and go, so I'm okay, I'm a little astonished too. I'm a little surprised too. These things don't seem to add up. You're preaching these nine things, these beatitudes, as descriptions of the good life? Really? Huh. Jesus is inviting his listeners and us through this living message into a way of being in the world here for us in Greenville, Texas that involves spiritual poverty. High Tennis Sunday on that sermon, right? Come on. Spiritual poverty, mourning. Oh, we're not going to have a place for anybody to sit the Sunday we preach on. You're supposed to be mourning. Meekness. Oh, goody. Man, let me rush and fill the seats for that sermon sermon on hunger and thirst for righteousness. These are his message. You realize what a hunger and thirst for righteousness implies? It implies that you're experiencing moments and seasons maybe even where there's an absence of righteousness. Like you hadn't had anything to eat for a while. Like you're thirsty. Man, that doesn't sound so Great. He's inviting those who have ears to hear into a life characterized by mercy. (laughs) Mercy is not giving us what we deserve. That's not giving someone what they deserve. Grace is giving someone a blessing they don't deserve. Mercy is not giving someone what they deserve. And he's inviting you into that life to not give something to someone that you know they really actually deserve it. He's inviting those who have ears to hear into a life characterized by purity in heart, by peacemaking. Who wants to make a beeline to that? Into persecution. And in these, he says, you'll find happiness, wholeness, felicity. You ever heard that word? 
It's a great word. It's bigger than happiness. It, it implies this, this, this place, this place you live of happiness. Not a little short visit, but felicity. Man, is that his message? And he's saying that you're going to flourish in these things. Let's acknowledge today, before we get into each of these, that these Beatitudes in the coming weeks, as we get into them, that they're shocking. We need to join the crowds in being astonished. He's got my attention. And here's one of the crazy things that it's going to develop this morning, I think, in some ways, and definitely in the coming weeks. These things that he's talked about, spiritual poverty, mourning, meekness, hunger, and thirsting for righteousness, this application to mercy, this purity of heart, peacemaking, persecution, these things aren't incidental to flourishing. They are instrumental in flourishing. Man, I need to understand that. I want to get my head and heart around that. So we're going to spend this morning trying to make sense of this thing, these things called Beatitudes. I want us to make sense of how to read them. Okay, he's already shocked us right off the bat with the words he's used. But we're going to spend the rest of the morning trying to make sense of the word makarios. There are nine of them here. Okay, they've been, we're going to, from this point on, I'm going to call these macarisms. Okay? They've been called Beatitudes. I was kind of thinking about when I was a kid growing up. Um, I grew up in central Louisiana. And I don't know why Coke was, everybody drank Coke, and our Coke was what you called everything. So much so that when somebody said, hey, you want a Coke? You said, sure. What flavor? I have a Sprite. I have a Sprite Coke. You got, hey, you got Mr. Pibb Coke? You got Dr. Pepper Coke? I mean, everything was a Coke. So I know Beatitudes wins, and that's what we're going to call these when somebody, that's a parking place. But at least for the morning, we're going to call them macarisms. And I'm going to explain why over the course of the morning, why we're going to call them Macarisms and how important that is. It's from the Greek word makarios. Here's what's really important about this, this word. It's on this one word, the entire Beatitudes stand. And I would argue all of your interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount stands. That you have to get this word right. If you get it right, the rest of it falls into place. If you get it wrong, it completely falls apart. Okay, so my goal in these next few minutes is to aim this word well. Okay, I want to aim it like a bow to where every arrow from this point on is aimed to where it hits the target. Okay, I know that's not a perfect illustration because you have to re-notch, but maybe we'll think of it like a rifle. You got it aimed perfectly, and we're going to fire some rounds down range where each time they're, they're on target. Okay, so that's my goal in these next few minutes. You go ahead and put that first image up, Casey. I've made some images this morning that I hope won't get in the way. And um, I hope they'll be helpful. I like to see things. I, it helped me understand things when I can actually visualize them. So I have my handy-dandy handy uh, uh, pointer here in case I need it. I may not need it because they're pretty straightforward. Okay, blessings from God. Bless, blessed is the word that's used here in this passage. That's the translation that, that we're dealt with. It's actually why they're called the Beatitudes. That's what Latin means, blessedness. Um, and then the macarism is what, what we're going to deal with uh, more in these next few minutes. Okay. I will try in these next few minutes to show you how important it is that you aim this word well. Okay? I've established that. And frankly, what a mess you're going to make of everything if you aim it poorly. The, the thing that I've been thinking about this morning and as I've prepared this week is 2,000 years ago on this mountainside, these guys did not have the hurdles that we have to deal with. First of all, the preacher himself is the Lord himself, but they don't have to deal with cultural obstacles. We're dealing with a 2,000 year later culture, we're dealing with language barriers, we're dealing with understanding of words that have been applied to concepts that have changed even over time, even within our own language. 
So we've got a little work to do to aim this thing well. Jesus probably preached in Aramaic, and it was recorded in Koine Greek. So we need to do the work of unpacking this and make sense of this. This is where I don't want to get louder. Okay, when I see the looks on your faces, I don't want to get louder. And I'm just going to hope and trust that actually the Lord is sort of helping you process some stuff. Okay, that's what I'm going to hope. <laughs> all right, first of all, you're going to put my second image up there, Casey. We're going to deal with this word makarios from the Greek vantage point first. And then we're going to look from the Jewish vantage point. I told you when we were setting the stage for this Sermon on the Mount that everybody that stepped onto that mount that day had a nexus of two things going on. They had Second Temple Judaism and they had Greco-Roman virtue ethics that met on that hillside that day and heard that sermon. So we had to climb into those things. So we're going to look at this word from those two angles, from the Greek vantage point and from the Jewish vantage point. So first from the Greek vantage point. Makarios comes from the root word makar, referring to the state of the gods. In the state of the gods, at least in the ancient Greek context, they viewed them as happy. They're living beyond care. They're living beyond need. They're living beyond labor. They don't even have to work. They're living beyond death. It was used, though, and this is what's important, and I brought this word up a a couple Sundays ago as a word that was, um, uh, I don't know if it was coined by Aristotle, but it's one that Aristotle used frequently, eudaimonia, which is a word that means human flourishing. This is a synonym with eudaimonia, of eudaimonia. It means inner happiness, satisfaction, a state of truly flourishing life. Aristotle developed this thought of the highest human good. That's where you experience not just fleeting happiness and not even felicity, but something even beyond that, flourishing, wholeness, completeness. You know, the army actually had a version of that. It's be all you can be. I mean, for real, that's like a, I don't know that they took it from that. Probably not. But it's that, that you could be all you could be. That's where you find flourishing and happiness. That's what this word means. Okay. Now, I'm just going to say right now, before we look at the Jewish vantage point, you can go ahead and hit that next slide, Casey. Um, already the word blessed seems a little bit anemic. I mean, I... I I hope you're maybe, if you follow along so far, you can agree that just from the Greek vantage point of what the word makarios means, that blessed feels a little bit anemic. Like maybe we should have some more words in there. Blessed, happy, blissful, fortunate, being all you can be. <laughs> Take the army's interpretation in there, put it all in there, and flesh that thing out like an, um, what's that Bible called that, that has a, like an exhaustive uh, translation should be a lot of words there that blessed seems by itself a little bit anemic. Okay, so let's go back to our word makarios. We're going to look at this word from the Jewish vantage point. You can turn to Psalm 1. Psalm 1. All right, Psalm 1 is a clearly connected psalm to the Sermon on the Mount. There are a lot of the things going on in Psalm 1 that are going on in the Sermon on the Mount. Two ways, a lot of these contrasts between wise living and unwise living. Um, blessings or flourishing and woe. The, the, the alternatives there of woes. Those unfold in Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is a very clearly a context, a background for the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? Now here's what's interesting and here's why we're going to the psalm. If you, if you know the Old Testament, you know the Old Testament's not written in Greek. 
So you're going to something that was written in Hebrew to try and make sense of a Greek word. Well, here's what's really interesting. The Old Testament was actually translated into the Greek. It's an ancient version called the Septuagint. The Septuagint is one of the greatest tools of interpretation of the Old Testament that we have and of the New. Because we're able to look at Greek words and see how they were translated in their Hebrew counterpart. And we're able to look at Hebrew words and see how they're translated in the Greek. But now a lot of times if you have a word over here in Hebrew and it's translated in the Septuagint in the Greek, it's translated a bunch of different ways. Okay, they take context and they take some liberties that we'll trust. Um, we're guided. We can't say they're inspired. We don't consider the, the Septuagint to be you know, directly in our, in our Bible. It's not in our canon. It's a translation, a Greek translation of the Old Testament. Okay, but it's certainly authoritative. And we look at that, the, the words that are taken over there in Hebrew, and we can look over here in Greek and make sense of those words, and we can go the other direction as well. But when, when the Septuagint takes a lot of these Greek words and uses and translates them in a bunch of different ways, you have to be really careful with the liberties that you take. Now, here's something that's really cool about these two words. And I haven't even told you the second one yet. The first one is makarios in Greek. Asher or Asherah is the Hebrew counterpart. Every single time Asherah is translated in the Greek, it's tra translated as makarios. It is as close as you can come to the Hebrew counterpart to the Greek word. The Greek word being makarios, the Hebrew word being Asherah. Okay, and Asherah is the word that's used right here at the very beginning of the psalm, Psalm 1, blessed. Unfortunately, translated, blessed. You may have another translation that says happy there, but it's translated here in my Bible, the ESV, as blessed. Now, all that to say, here's, here's where I'm going with this. I'm going to read a little bit of Psalm 1, and I want you to just kind of consider the flavor of what's being described there. Okay, let me just tell you, too, this is a wisdom psalm. This word, Asherah, the Hebrew counterpart to Makarios, the word that we're trying to make sense of, is used in a lot of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. It's all over the Proverbs, and it's in a few of the Psalms, Psalms 1 and 2 being a couple of them. And Psalms 1 and 2 are considered wisdom psalms. Okay, so we're going to climb into this and see if we can kind of get a sense of what this life looks like. This blessed is the man, Asherah. Okay, if we were reading the Septuagint, it would be Makarios is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law... He meditates day and night. Man, he's reading his Bible all the time. You see that guy? He's reading his Bible, man. Those pages are worn out. He's got his like, oil on the pages. He's reading it so much. You know what I'm talking about? You see everybody read, read their Bible like that? That's this guy. That's this blessed Makarios Asherah guy. He's like a tree planted by streams of water which bears its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Can you see it? big, beautiful tree planted by this beautiful stream. In all he does, he prospers. Man, that sounds like flourishing to me, doesn't it? Does it sound like flourishing to you where someone says of you, in all you do, you prosper? Man, that sounds like you're being all you can be, right? Okay, now all that to say, all that effort, because I want you to understand this word over here in Psalm 1, Asherah, that is the Hebrew counterpart for Makarios, has the effect of full human flourishing through wise living. Man, I hope that sounds familiar to Makarios. Full human flourishing through wise living. Now, what I, what I want to do now, I want to sort of bring these things together. 
the Greek understanding of makarios that I shared with you already, the, the, the highest human good, truly flourishing, inner happiness, satisfaction, being all you can be, that Greek understanding of makarios, and the Jewish counterpart, Asherah, that we just developed, the full human flourishing through wise living, neither of those things mean being blessed. That's why it's an unfortunate translation. Neither of them mean when you hear someone is blessed, you're like, man, I'm blessed. A synonym is you're receiving divine favor from God. Neither of those concepts involve direct divine favor from God. Okay, now right now, I, I've, I've imagined myself in your spot right now, and I already see one furrowed brow. I bet there's others in here, and they're going, okay, I'm completely confused. Hang in there, all right? This is going to, I think, sort of settle out here and just, it's going to distill out into something that makes sense here in a moment. But I want you to get this. The Greek understanding of makarios, this word that's used over there in Matthew chapter 5, the introduction to this shocking sermon. And this Jewish counterpart, Asherah, neither mean blessed as in receiving divine favor from God. And I want to just take a moment to give some space to that concept of divine favor from God. Because we talk about it all the time, and I hope that you're sitting here thinking, that's probably what's behind the furrowed brows. Like, I like divine favor from God. I like passages that talk about that. And that's why I even like the notion of this being blessed and leaving that word alone. There is a, pay, a place for the idea of being blessed in our Bibles. In Greek, there is a word that's used for being blessed. It's eulogetos. And in Hebrew, it's the word barak. The being blessed by God. And it also involves usually blessing God, ironically. The places in our Bible that oftentimes say blessed is this, blessed is that, that sounds like we're receiving from something from the Lord, is a lot of times this word makarios and is not a really good translation. When you see other places that talk about blessing the Lord or the Lord blessing you, it might be this other version that I'm talking about, eulogetos or barak. Here's a couple of examples. Uh, first, I'll, just, I'll give you an example of one that's just easy to visualize. In Ephesians chapter 1, where you can see these contrasted. Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, that's vertical. We're blessing him in that direction. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Eulogetos. Not makarios. Not the word that's used in the Sermon on the Mount. A word that's used all over our, our New Testaments. For blessings from God and to God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ Jesus. That's a great example. Here's another example. In Romans chapter 1 where they traded the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Eulagetos. It's not the word that's over here that we're looking at in the Beatitudes. It's a different word. And in Hebrew, the word barak Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Barak, not Asherah. Not the wisdom-type use of this word that we're seeing over there in Psalm 1 and that we're seeing over here in Matthew 5. So here's where I'm going with this. What's going on in the Beatitudes with this word makarios is something other than direct divine blessing. This is hugely important, and you'll see why in just a moment. Carrying over the wisdom tradition used, uh, use of Asherah and the use of Makarios from the Greek, 
Jesus is painting a picture of what God-centered human flourishing looks like. Okay, hit that next slide, Casey. And that's what it looks like. You see that? A tree planted by streams of water, which bearing its fruit in season. That looks exactly like a tree planted by streams of water, doesn't it? You can almost imagine the fruit that's being born in season. Okay, I have this image up here because I want you to be able to contrast the difference. This is not what is going on in the, in the Beatitudes. Blessing to God and blessing from God. What's going on in the Beatitudes is this thing right here. This environment of flourishing. This eudaimonia. This blissful felicity. Now here's why this is very, very important. Okay? Jesus stepping up on this mount 2,000 years ago. This divine psalmist. This divine philosopher who we know he's so much more than that, but we, he's not any less than that. This owner of all wisdom, this embodiment of wisdom, is stepping up on that mount that day, painting a picture of what God-centered human flourishing looks like. And it looks like this. A tree planted by streams of water, bearing its fruit in season. You can leave that image up here just for a little bit, Casey. Now, let me show you what I'm talking about in Psalm 1. Let me show you why this is important that we make this distinction. Because right now, I bet you're not buying it. I bet you're like, man, what's the point? But let me show you here in Psalm 1, a passage I just read, how viewing this one way is altogether different from viewing it another way. Look at Psalm 1. Asherah is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. He's got his fingerprint oil all over the pages and in his law he meditates day and night he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither in all he does he prospers when psalm 1 speaks of asherah this god-oriented person is in a state of flourishing and happiness and felicity in the meditation itself He's in that happy, flourishing state in the meditation itself on God's word itself. The person who delights in God's word is flourishing in the very delighting. He's not waiting for some divine favor from above. He's already got it in, the la in his lap as he's holding that oil-soaked page of God's word. All right, you don't have it yet. Understanding blessed, okay? Understanding this word correctly. Okay, let me, let me start with wrongly. Understanding blessed wrongly as divine favor from God will result in coming to Psalm 1 and saying, if I do this, then God will do this. If I read my Bible and I have oil soaked all over my pages... Then I'm going to be like a tree planted by streams of water that bears its fruit in season. Because that's how blessings work. Right? It's transactional. That's not what's being said there. You see how profoundly different that is than what I'm talking about. The wiser reader, instead of saying, if I read my Bible, then God will bless me. Instead says, God is gracious in the giving of his word to me to read. 
The happiness and felicity is coming from having God's word in my lap, not some blessing he's going to give me because I'm going to read God's word. And that's the wise reader. Totally different person. Totally different motive. Totally different expectation. I would argue that one's a consumer and one's a worshiper. Okay. Psalm 1 isn't making a claim about God's favor, okay, i.e. blessing from above. Instead, is an inspired vision for the wise way of being in the world that will result in what all humans desire, human flourishing. The wise person who chooses God's revelation as his or her orientation will flourish like a well-watered tree bearing its fruit in season. The asherism, we'll call it, and the macarism is an invitation to be a certain way in the world, not because it's demanded, Not because it's even commanded. And not because you hope to get a blessing out of it. On the other side of it, if you do it. It's not a, God, I'll do this. or I'll do this if you'll do this. It's not transactional. If I read my Bible and I don't hang around with scoundrels, then God will bless me. That's not what's going on here. The Asherism and Macarism is an invitation to be a certain way in the world. Because it's in that certain way that you'll find felicity, happiness, and wholeness, and flourishing. Okay, turn that slide off. Thank you, Casey. All right, so why all this effort? Some of you, I saw a few head nods where like some people are like, hey, I'm kind of getting that. Some of y'all are still probably is kind of these thoughts that are still kind of out here. So let me, let me kind of see if I can wrangle this for you. See if we survive this. Why all this effort? I want to just show you how a subtle reading difference um, can aim the bow in a completely wrong direction. I don't think we realize how readily we adopt a transactional and commercial relationship with our God. Have you ever heard somebody that's like sick and like, man, they're they're moving well, they're dealing with you know some difficulty, and they and their family are moving well, and you're like. Lord, they're moving so well. Where's their healing? That's a natural prayer, isn't it? Can you pan out and see it's transactional, though? Lord, they're doing this. You got to do this. You got to pay them back for their goodness. We can approach the Sermon on the Mount that way, we can approach Psalm 1 that way. I was poor in spirit. This is the wrong view of blessedness. Lord, I was poor in spirit today, so where's my blessing? Man, I was, I was so meek today. <laughs> I did some mourning. Mm. I was hungry. I thirsted for righteousness. Ooh, I was thirsty. And I stepped into a real mess with a couple of my friends and did some peacemaking. So where's my blessing? I did what I was supposed to do. Where's your deal? You're part of the deal, God. And then when it doesn't show up, we feel gypped. Because we don't understand it from the outset. I prayed for my enemies today, so where's my blessing? I turned the other cheek, so where's my blessing? This is so much on my mind today. I walked outside and I was petting my cat and it had a, a, a scratch on, her, on his head from fighting last night. And I said, buddy, you need to turn the other whisker. I mean, so I'm saturated, inundated with it. I turned the other whisker, so where's my blessing? 
man, that commercial and transactional relationship with God is not worship, first of all. I hope you would recognize it would be an unhealthy relationship just between y'all. As husband and wife, hey, you know what? I'm going to go win the bread. I'm going to go do some work this week and, and get, a, a pay, get some pay for us. And here's what I'm expecting you to do. I hope your wife would be like, say what? How would it be if you had told your kids, kids, here's what it means to live in our home. We want you to treat each other with respect. We want you to be thoughtful and loving with one another. We want you to be helpful with one another. We want you to be merciful with one another. And the kids said, okay, well, what's in it for me? You'd be like, kid, you don't know you know. Come here, let me, <laughs> let me lay hands on you like Nehemiah, you know. You know that would not be healthy. We don't realize how quickly we move into a transactional relationship with the Lord. Okay, that's the first problem with this. But here's where I think the bigger problem that's even more tragic is we don't realize that what he's calling to, called us to, is actually the blessing itself. It is itself the blessing. Read God's word, not so you'll be a tree planted by streams of water. Read God's word because you're going to find wholeness and happiness and health and health just in having it in your hand. Just in knowing what God said. Man, it's missing out on the real carrot. I thought about it like this, and then I'm going to close this. I'm going to quit while I'm ahead, but I'm just going to leave you with this, this thought. It'd be like in the garden. Where Adam, okay, here, first of all, God says, okay, here's your two commands. And there's two. There's not just one. Don't eat from that one tree. There's two commands. Eat from any tree of the garden, Adam. Eat up. Take and eat, buddy. Oh, by the way, don't eat from that tree. There's a second command. It'd be like, first of all, Adam saying, okay, uh, what's in it for me? Right? I mean, you'd be like, Adam. Did you just hear what he said? Did you notice? Did you look around at the Garden of Eden? That's a garden full of trees and blessing. What's in it for you? First of all, it's transactional. It's sad. It's, it's consumerism. It's not worship. But second of all, it's missing the blessing. Okay, God, here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to eat from that one tree you told me not to eat from. Instead, I'm just going to eat from all these other trees over here. So you'll bless me, right? You've missed it, Adam. All those other trees over there are the blessing. You got a full belly from every tree in the garden. That is the blessing. Man, I hope that's how we can read this Sermon on the Mount from this point on. I hope that arrow, excuse me, that bow is aimed well. Let's pray. Lord, I pray this morning that you will make sense of something that I know is really, really a new concept, Lord, I pray that you would give us, first of all, shed light on ways that we may view you and interact and correspond with you transactionally. Lord, you have already given us so much. You've given us everything in our Savior and Lord, in this access that we have to you through his finished work, in the word that we can read and enjoy, in the people of God that we can walk with. You have given us so much. Forgive us where we knowingly or unknowingly feel like we need to um, somehow transact with you and um, deal with you commercially where we're good boys and girls for one event or some occasion and that we should get something in return from you. You've already given us so much. 
Secondly, Lord, please open our eyes to the goodness that you've already given us. Or give us a felicity, a wholeness, a shalom, a peace, a fullness, a completeness, a flourishing, a sense of flourishing in all that you've already given us. Lord, I pray we'll see a garden full of trees that you've given us to enjoy. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Oswald Chambers said of the Sermon on the Mount, he said it's not a set of principles to be obeyed apart from the identification with Jesus Christ. You know, Gandhi read the Sermon on the Mount and was like blown away by it. He said, in fact, Gandhi said, I think I'm a Christian. He read the Sermon on the Mount. He said, I think I'm a Christian. But he left Christ out of it. It was just because of what he read in the Sermon on the Mount. You can read the Sermon on the Mount and somehow tragically leave the preacher out of it. And miss the point that Jesus is himself not just sharing some information. The preacher is himself the preacher, but is also the content and is also the end, the goal, the aim. And every single week we land the plane on this supper because we need to make a beeline to this supper. He is our only hope. Today and will he ever be. As we consider these beautiful pictures and these shocking messages in the Sermon on the Mount and this otherworldly ethic that we're called to as the people of God, we have to make a beeline every single week to enjoy our Savior who fulfilled this perfectly. So we're going to distribute the elements. As, I, as we distribute these, I want to encourage you to, if you're not trusting Christ as the Savior and Lord, then please forego this meal. These are, this meal is for those who are trusting him. This meal is for those who are saying he's my only hope. I want to live out this faithful life, but he's my only hope on my best day and my worst day. And I trust him. Let's distribute the elements.